and welcome back to another episode of the Realm of Unknown. I apologize for this weird sort of scheduling thing that has been happening the past few episodes. Um, it's been weird, I should say. The past several weeks have been a bit of an adjustment on my own end, so I apologize for that as of now. Um, obviously, uh, Fright Month was a bit of a just overkill on my part, and I've been still slightly adjusting since then. Um, a lot of topics that I was going to cover got covered in there, and I actually have one right now that I am recording rather late, not due to the fact that it you know, took me forever to finish, but the fact that I just have not been able to find the time to actually sit down and record this episode. So this is actually being recorded I mean, at the time of it, at the time that it should get uploaded, I should say it it should be the Friday before. We'll see how that goes. I know I'm scheduled for a double on the Saturday, so we'll see if I even get back in time to get this up and live. But yeah, so I'm not gonna ramble on too long because there's not a whole lot of new updates or anything for me to discuss. I'm just gonna get right into the episode. Um, Today's topic is going to be the Belleroy Mansion here in Philadelphia, and I'm probably going to pronounce a lot of these things wrong, so bear with me. I'm actually just going to record pretty much straight through, essentially, I guess, the closest thing to live as you could possibly get with this, um, at least for me. Um, so bear with me when it comes to pronunciations and stuff like that. Uh, but we're going to go be going through the rather generalized approach that we have for this episode, or this, I guess, structure that I have, in going through some of the backstory and sort of core foundation of the location or topic, and then getting into some of the ghosts that might be, or I guess like paranormal stuff that um, are attributed to locations. Now, I gave a heads up over on Twitter, so if anyone has not been uh, up, staying up to date over on there, you do so at Realm of Unknown. But this is actually going to be a two-part episode, or not, sorry, two-part uh, series, essentially, or two-part topic, in which I'm going to be focusing most, if not all, of the paranormal or supernatural-based topics uh, and sort of stories relating to this location to this episode being the first part. And the sort of, I don't want to say, like, like uh, I don't even know the term I'm trying to think of for this, but all of like the additional background and like the additional structure and like what's happening up to the point that we ended for this episode is going to be saved for episode two and that's going to be uploaded a week later and it's going to be essentially what's going to be wrapping out this year of 2019 for this podcast is going to be this topic, the Belleroy Mansion. And I'm doing so because, and again, I detailed over, over on Twitter, that this topic I didn't think had as much as it actually does. I originally just assumed that it was something to do with an object that we will be talking about later in the episode. But that's the only thing I knew of this place. I did not know that it had more history to it. I did not realize how deep it actually went and how many like sort of rabbit holes that I found myself in. Especially that's essentially why I made it into a two-parter is because there were a lot of things that I wasn't so solid on and a lot of things that I just wanted to give more time and more, I guess, possibilities to. So I 
decided to break it apart and create a two-parter. And without further ado, let's begin this first part because I'm rambling on. Okay, so the Bellory Mansion is situated within the Chestnut Hill region of Philadelphia and essentially is claimed to be one of the most haunted houses within the United States. This home is crazy. So the mansion itself houses around 30 rooms, a courtyard, and a completely separated cottage home just all together. And all of this is settled on a 22,000 foot plot of land or about 6 to 6.7 kilometers for my international friends out there and listeners. The mansion was constructed in the year of 1911 and the origin of the building is a tad strange as there are some rumors out just pretty much starting us off the bat that the original owner was a carpenter who actually constructed the home himself. However, the story goes that him and his wife were both murdered several years later while living in the home. Whether or not this is true, I can't actually clarify, so that may have to be saved to the second part. Um, however, that is sort of just something that lingers with the history of the home. But advancing a little bit further down the timeline, we get to the year of 19 we get to the year of 1926. And the mansion was purchased by the Etsby family. Again, I'm probably going to be pronouncing their name weird. It's either going to be Etsby or Easby. I'm probably going to bounce between the two throughout this episode, so bear with me. But let's just do Easby because it's easier. So the Easby family purchased it, purchased this home back in uh, 1926. And they were a rather well-off family, and they claimed that a lot of their roots were within English nobility as far back as the 12th century, to the Easby Abbey. The family would even end up filling the home with several artifacts and antiques from famous and historical individuals, such as Napoleon Bonaparte, Thomas Jefferson, and Civil War General George Meade, which the family also claims as a notable member of their lineage. So the stories of the home really, like, again, really get down to it when it comes to the Easby family moving into the property. So in particular, a lot of them are focused on their two sons, uh, that being George Meade Easby and being named after his grandfather, who I just mentioned as the Civil War general, and his younger brother, uh, Stephen. However, keep, keep George in your mind because George is essentially going to be the central focus of pretty much everything we're going to be talking about. All of this stuff sort of starts a few years after they actually move into the home in the year of 1931, as George and his younger brother Stephen were playing about in the courtyard. This is when they noticed something rather strange when taking a moment to look into the fountain. The two boys were looking into the fountain, and that's when Stephen's reflection changed into that of a skull. Both boys apparently noticed it, however, it seems as though both boys were the only two that were present, and that does sort of leave a lot of things to just be up in the air. However, after this event allegedly took place, just a few months later, Stephen actually would pass away after succumbing to a rather mysterious and very sudden illness that doctors just sort of chalked up to childhood illness, which doesn't make any sense naming wise but 
So Stephen does pass away in the home uh, in the year of 1931 at the age of 11, I believe, at the time. And again, they cannot really determine the cause of death. All they can really know is that it was an illness, and allegedly he and George both noticed a sort of omen before the death. And this would actually mark the very first death within the home. However, if we're not including the two rumored carpenter couple from the beginning. And as time would pass on, however, this number would increase. The Easbys were struck hard by Stephen's passing, but eventually they were able to get their lives moving and continue onwards. This would remain true until the passing of Henrietta Easby, George's mother, some 30 years in the year of 1962 at the age of 82. She would be followed by her husband only seven years later in the year of 1969, and George's father would pass away at the age of 90, leaving George the last remaining member of the family within the mansion. So at this time, George would eventually rename the mansion to what it is today, being the Belleroy Mansion. However, it derives from the other name, Belleroy, with two L's, not one. I know, he's real original. And this is actually named after the uh, chateau that's located in the Lior Valley over in France. And George, at this time, again, he was living on his own in the house. No more family members were there. He actually started to hire on a lot of like workers, general housekeepers, and just people to work throughout the mansion. However, he never had them stay there overnight. He would just have them there during the day. They would go home, and he would be, again, the only person that would live and sleep in the mansion at all times. I do want to mention before we start that, as I stated again, George is the most prominent member of this family and again he is going to be the key like central focus for pretty much every story when it comes to this episode in general and i just want to have that in your minds because to me personally when it comes to that sort of stuff you get into a sort of a gray zone because you don't have as many people to corroborate the stories and when retelling the stories, it mainly comes from George's side of the spectrum as well. So bear with me as we start to delve into the ghosts, which we are starting with now. So to really start with these ghost stories, we need to begin once again with the Easby family itself. And that would become clear, as again, supported by George, that both him and his younger brother had some stuff going on, and their mother, Henrietta, apparently seems to be sticking around as well. So I'm going to start off with Stephen, because obviously we mentioned him already, and the fact that he possibly had some weird omen in the house sort of already starts him off as a weird situation. Well, if you were to ask George, he believes that his younger brother is actually still around and had been living in the house essentially since his death. So Stephen never, again, never left the home, and they, he's actually been spotted several times throughout the years since then, and this time not only by George. So several years back, while some renovations were being done on the property, contractors had been outside in the yard when they had what they claimed a sudden urge to look up. Upon doing so, they spotted a young, blonde-haired boy watching them from the second-story window. 
At this point in time, no children were living in the house, nor should they have been in the house at all. And to make things even creepier, only upon reporting the sighting to their superiors did they realize that the room in which they noticed the boy was none other than Stephen's original bedroom. So furthermore, Stephen also seems to pop up with George throughout his time in the house. One evening, while hosting a dinner event with some friends, a loud crash could be heard throughout the house. And this is a rather famous event when it comes to the stories with the ghosts. And when the party heard this loud crash and they went to go investigate, they discovered that within the gallery, a photo or a painting or a picture essentially had been tossed across the room from one side to the other. They approximate around 15 feet. However, I can't, again, obviously this is all just coming from firsthand accounts of people there. They I don't think they actually measured it with a ruler or a tape measure. However, when they were trying to figure out how this particular photo was able to get across the room, apparently on its own, because no one seemed to be in the room at that moment. They inspected the hook, they inspected the wire that held up the photo. However, neither had been tampered with, neither had been damaged in any way. The hook was still secure in the wall. The only possible way that the photo could have physically been moved is if it were to have been lifted off the hook and then tossed across the room. So whether or not it's paranormal or someone physically doing it, that's the only way that they, they hypothesize that it could have been moved. To make things even creepier, once again, this was a picture of Steven. So Steven seems to be doing some weird stuff when it comes to his things, because I don't know, I don't know, I'm not throwing my photo around the house when I people have parties. But again, like I mentioned, uh, Stephen's not the only Espy that's uh, here in the location. His mother and George's mother, Henrietta, is the next ghost that I do want to talk about when it comes to the Bellaroy Mansion. So George's mother, or I should say the boy's mother, she's a rather interesting ghost when it comes to this story because I don't believe there's any reports of her actually being seen or like generally reported. She's pretty unanimously only spoken through one means and this is through a psychic that george invited into the house and later befriended by the name of judith times so keep her in mind because i'm definitely going to be talking about judith times when it comes to the second part of this uh sort of series judith and george again became friends uh during and during one of the visits to the home Judith began to describe a female spirit who had been repeating the name of Longfellow over and over and over again, just repeating this word. And she seemed confused, but George seemed to immediately become interested, as his mother had often read Longfellow to him back when he was younger. And if no one knows, Longfellow is a poet slash author. Judith began uh, to continue on, stating that the spirit had began to repeat the phrase, the children's hour. Just at hit, just as it had been repeating the phrase Longfellow, it just started saying this over and over and over in Judith's head. And once again, George seemed to know what it meant, as the phrase was actually the title of a Longfellow poem that he and his mother had oftentimes read together. So, intrigued by this sort of weird experience, George 
I guess later in the evening just happened to go into the study and he just has so happened to notice that one of the books that had been partially pulled out from the shelf was a collection of Longfellow poems. Upon further inspection of this book, George discovered that there was an envelope inside, and this envelope happened to have his mother's handwriting and the words that read, To my son Meade in the event of my death. However, upon opening the letter, there was nothing inside. So I don't know what happened, all this elaborate setup, and George got nothing out of it. But at the very least, he does sort of sort of get some confirmation that possibly his mom is still lingering about throughout the house, and she has a way of communicating through Judith. And Judith would continue to visit the home a few more times, and once again, Henrietta would speak through her. She would inform George that she had hidden some family antiques throughout the home and wanted George to know about them. So when they searched the home, lo and behold, George did discover that there were silver candlesticks up in the rafters of the storeroom. Next, Judith informed George that his mother had also mentioned that there was a hidden drawer in one of the old office desks within the home. Again, George looked where he was told to go look, and eventually he did locate the desk and found that there was a false drawer hidden within it. Inside the drawer was the old remnants of a battered Confederate flag. And this is weird, keep in mind. Um, I guess maybe not so weird. Uh, it is a Confederate flag, but again, his so alleged ancestor, uh, General George Meads, was a general during the Civil War. However, he was a Union general, so I don't understand why a Union general would have this unless it was some weird keepsake or trophy on his behalf or maybe he knew someone and this was like a weird sense of honor i don't know but george now has a really 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 old confederate flag and i don't think he does anything with it but henrietta is not done <laughs> she just keeps going she just keeps finding new stuff for george to find so she informs george that there is also a secret chest located up in the attic one that belonged to george's great-grandfather richard Meade. And this actually was true. George did find the chest, and inside of it were papers, papers that detailed how Richard Meade had loaned the young American government back in the year of 1819 $5 million. And all of this was in order to help them purchase Florida from Spain at the time. However, it would seem that good old, the good old U.S. of A., never actually paid George's great-grandfather back the $5 million that he was owed. And now George, being his only living descendant, essentially inherits that repayment along with the over 170 years of compiling interest that has been growing on that loan. I couldn't even tell you the number, partially because I didn't look it up <laughs> to add that interest onto it, but it's a lot of money. If he gave you $5 million in 1819 money, or maybe they already did convert it, I don't know, he's a lot of money. And he actually tried to go through the legal process of obtaining that money and getting it from the government. However, I'm pretty sure he never saw that when it came to the lawsuit. Fairly certain that it just never went anywhere. Uh, and unfortunately, George does pass away at the end of this story. But as you can see, like we already have so much going on with Stephen and Henrietta. Uh, the only two Espies that... I believe are the ones that haunt the house. Honestly, 
there aren't really too many stories when it comes to the father. However, he does sort of pop up every now and then. But I do want to preface this by saying that we're not even to like the juicy bit stuff. I'm literally just covering the family. This house has so much more stuff going on. And I want to just say that we're now going to hop over from that section of this little script of mine to essentially what I literally just called other ghosts <laughs> because i i don't know what else to call it they're literally just other ghosts um and a few of them have the preface of just object ghosts so let, let's get into it so that's all again when it comes to the family ghosts um there aren't again stories relating to george's father after he passed away supposedly though before he did die he did confess to george that he had witnessed his wife's spirit so being Henrietta's ghost, as well as being fully aware that there were other entities within the house. We'll discuss this more in part two because, again, it seems to be a thing that he confessed to George on his dying bed, so I I can't really validate any of that. However, again, this is nowhere near the end of the ghost stories, not by a long shot. And the again, I want to remind you that the SVs were rather fond of gathering antiques and artifacts as well as historical items and those that were relating to their family and their uh, lineage. And if you are in any way familiar with the paranormal, you realize that a lot of this supposed, uh, supposed phenomena is linked to energies and spirits being attached to either objects or locations that they are fond of in some significant way. And when you gather a bunch of those things and cram them into one location, bound to have a lot of weird stuff happen. So the first of the added residents to the home, aside from George, is an old woman. So this old woman, seen oftentimes spotted again by George, is the old woman's spirit that seems to wander throughout the halls of the upstairs areas of the mansion, oftentimes at a rather slow and labored pace while utilizing a cane for support. She is sometimes reported to have been going around banging and yelling, and there are some possible rumors uh, and speculation that this could potentially be the spirit of the original wife of the original uh, couple that owned the house, the you know rumored carpenter couple, but there's really nothing thing that supports that sort of narrative but i just want to mention it before we move on next is the spirit of a monk who is adorned in tan robes he doesn't seem to do very much however there is a possibility that the spirit is attached to one of the many family artifacts that the SVs brought over from overseas again they date back very very far into the you know 12th century and beyond is that's at least what they claim and super religious over in Europe in a lot of cases, and the possibility of a monk somehow being attached to an item that the family brought into their home is a possibility. And a more famous spirit that I want to mention is that of Thomas Jefferson, you know, the nation's founding fathers and the third president of the United States. At this point in time, Jefferson has been long dead at the, uh, the, not the time of recording, I should say, but the time in which he is spotted throughout the house. Obviously, he's not 200 and like 60 years old. And you'd think that why would he be here? 
especially since he's been dead for so long. Within the Espy's house, again, there are actually several items that have been owned by Jefferson during his life. However, it seems that the spirit is oftentimes spotted within the dining room, near or relatively close by to one of the old grandfather clocks that stands there. Whether or not this is owned by Jefferson, I could not determine, and there isn't really any explanation as to why the spirit is attached to that particular object or room. And then we get into the real meat of it, because let me tell you, out of all the spirits that we've mentioned, all the possible entities that are in this home, there is one, and this is the one that I originally knew about, that makes this home really, really famous. And this is the spirit of Amanda. So the last spirit that we're going to be talking about is possibly the worst. Uh, as I just mentioned, it's probably the most infamous as well. And it is arguably the reason as to why the paranormal community loves this home and why it is actually on the map in any regards to the paranormal. And like the last three spirits that I've mentioned, this one seems to be attached to an object within the home itself. And it goes by the name of Amanda or Amelia, depending on who you're talking to or in who you're using as a source. Uh, I've yeah, found both both of these names popped up. But for the sake of this episode, I'm going to be referring to her as Amanda just because. But if you see Amelia, you can interchange them. So out of all the spirits in the home, aside from Stevens, Amanda is probably the most prevalent spirit overall and for the most stories and rumors and sightings are attached to her amanda's spirit seems to be mainly operating within one specific room of the home one that has been redubbed the blue room and this was specifically in response to a blue haze or mist that also seems to be linked to amanda and the sightings relating to her some articles and sources will also dub it the red mist. However, I don't understand why. Apparently people see a red mist, but they dub the room the blue mist or the blue room whenever they see a blue. It's confusing. But the room itself uh, and in turn the spirit are also infamous for one other connection. That being an antique chair that resides within the room that is supposedly one that was owned at one point by Napoleon Bonaparte himself. However, we can't 100% clarify this, and I will detail that in the second part. The chair is upholstered with blue fabric and has a yellow flower pattern across of it. And because of this chair, this is where we got a lot of stories surrounding Amanda. So if you were to ask George, he would tell you that Amanda is an unpleasant and vengeful spirit. In fact, George once had an experience in which he felt someone grip his arm so tight when he was sleeping that when he woke up the next day, there were visible bruises in the shape of fingers on his arm. George remained adamant to the day of his death that the experience was the result of Amanda and her anger. This sort of anger and malevolence comes to a point as Amanda's spirit and the chair that she's believed to be attached to is supposedly the cause of several deaths that occurred in the home, or I should say linked to the home. And if you were to ask George in particular, he believes that there are four deaths that are linked to what I'm about to talk about. So the deaths that sort of sparked this theory, I should say the particular one, is that of an actual employee and close friend of George by the name of Paul Kimmers. 
And this is a man who worked with the SB estate for several years. Again, he became friends with George over time. However, he was not a believer of the mansion's sort of supernatural residence. He's just sort of went about his day. He's like, you know, I just got to go to work. I don't really want to bother about this. And this was up until Judith Himes, the psychic that we mentioned from earlier, came into the picture and began to visit the home. And George was taking Judith on a tour of the location because, you know, he's been there for so many years. He knows how to walk her around. He knows how to talk about the items and the history of a lot of the things that are in the home. And this is when he actually, for the very first time, spotted the blue mist. And this was as it was descending from the front stairs within the home. And the mist never actually came up to the two of them. However, Paul was supposedly very upset by the encounter. Several weeks after the ordeal, Judith, keep in mind Judith, not George, would receive a call from a rather frantic Paul, who once again seemed to be very upset after all this time. He began to detail that Amanda's spirit had followed him home from the mansion after they had witnessed the mist. In fact, during the day of the sighting, he was driving home and he spotted Amanda through the rearview mirror of his car. She was just sitting silently in the back seat and she completely disappeared the moment he turned around to investigate. It just, ugh. Paul began to see Amanda everywhere. She began to see her within his home, standing amongst crowds out in public and she would even stand over his bed and wake him up constantly throughout the night, just as he was about to fall asleep. Which is, scratch off the idea of like, oh, a creepy spirit of a dead girl was actually like haunting me. But the idea of she's just being like an utter jerk and just waking you up throughout the night, like, come on, Amanda. So a month of this would go by, um, and Paul would become physically and mentally just completely distraught. Um, and he was just sort of, Weaning away, he was losing weight, he was clearly not getting enough sleep, and one day George passed by the blue room and noticed that, that Paul was slumped over in the antique chair. His friends seemed to be having an unpleasant dream of sorts, however, George had not been, you know, he'd been noticing that Paul had not been getting enough sleep and he wanted his friend to, you know, be able to recover a little bit and try to relax. So he didn't do anything. He just let George sleep and he moved on. He didn't disturb his friend. However, this would be the very last time that George would see Paul alive. As a few days later, Paul would just mysteriously pass away. He would just suddenly fall and just pass away. No one really knew as to why. And George became very upset by this. He believed that, you know, he knew that Paul was being heckled by Amanda throughout these past weeks. He knew that something was going on, and he blamed Amanda for this. He blamed her and the chair. George began to think and all that, hey, I saw Paul sitting in that chair, and he passed away only a few days afterwards. And that sort of thinking sort of started to turn some gears for George. And that's when he realized that this wasn't actually the first time that this had happened. In fact, like I mentioned, George believes that there are actually three other deaths that relate to the chair itself and sudden passings that occurred a few days afterwards. The other accounts are not as detailed as Paul Kimmer's, uh, however, but George does seem adamant that the chair and in extension Amanda was to blame for these sudden deaths. Another one was from another worker of the location, a caretaker, 
who had sat within the chair and almost immediately slumped over. She passed away only a few hours after this had happened. Whether or not it was the chair, I'm not 100% sure. Again, we're going to talk about more detailed stuff in episode 2. One of George's cousins, again, his name I could not find anywhere for the life of me, was allegedly another victim of the chair. Again, not many details on these other ones because this all happened apparently before Paul Kimmer's death and George is sort of reminiscing on them. But I do believe that this specific encounter results, this particular last one I just mentioned, um, being the death of George's cousin. I believe he technically didn't sit in the chair uh, from the stories I've looked into. I believe he merely touched it. I don't think he actually had full seated contact with it. And so that may poke some holes into the theory of you have to sit in it or you have to disturb it. Something complicated. Now, earlier I did mention that George claimed that three others aside from Paul were the ones that had died in relation to the chair. However, the Chestnut Hill Historical Society can only corroborate three of these deaths have actually happened to have occurred. That being the caretaker, uh, George's cousin, and again, Paul Kimmers. That is why I did not mention a fourth story because no one can really clarify to any degree if a fourth one actually happened. However, due to all of this sort of speculation and all of these theories and sort of attention that was brought upon this after Paul Kimmer's death and George sort of bringing this notion into the limelight, the chair itself was redubbed the Death Chair, which was, I guess, fitting in some way. And the thing is, too, Amanda almost did have another victim, and this was a man by the name of Lloyd Gross. So Lloyd was a freelance reporter, and he, too, befriended George during his life. And during a visit to the home, he, too, witnessed the infamous Blue Mist. During the exact same trip that this occurred, his tape recorder was tossed from his grasp, which caused the, you know, he was a huge skeptic. This caused the skeptical side of him to immediately try to figure out a reason as to the phenomenon occurring. But he left the mansion completely stumped. He couldn't find a reason as to why he would just you know, have that tossed from his hand. Later that same night, Lloyd would return back to the mansion in order to help out uh, and attend a charity event that was being hosted at the home. After the event wrapped up, he and George would go stroll down the driveway leading back to Lloyd's car. And this is when Lloyd would suddenly feel something smack him on the back. And immediately, he would assume that George, being the only other person there, was the one that did it, and he called him out for it. But George gave him a rather confused look and claimed that he had not touched Lloyd at all. Not too long after that, later in the night, later in this exact same night, so this is all just happening in one day, George would receive a call from Lloyd, who seemed verbally upset. Lloyd claims that he had pulled back into his home and witnessed the same blue haze moving about within his home and he could see it from the front window of you know the sort of the front uh living room windows upset by this apparently lloyd called out the spirit and essentially shoot it off he just kind of yelled at it and i guess this worked because in the end lloyd's relation to amanda stops here she just sort of seems to ignore him from this point onwards and that doesn't really she just sort of gave up 
Um, and aside from enticing people to sit within her chair or moving as a sort of figureless mist, Amanda is also allegedly responsible for all sorts of just obnoxious things that occurred throughout the mansion. Apparently, she would cause rooms that you would want her into to drop drastically in temperature and become extremely cold. She would also be the one that allegedly is the one responsible for opening and closing doors rather violently. She would just sort of slam them nonstop. And she would eventually, all of this, would eventually cause George to drape a cloth over the chair and sort of rope it off in order to appease the spirit's rage. And that seems to have worked because, again, she didn't have any more victims and things sort of seemed to die down. And that's pretty much, for the most part, every paranormal thing that up until this point I'll talk about. Because, again, they're, the timeline's technically not done and there are more things that I want to talk about that will be coming up but they are all better suited for the part two section of this, and I don't want to bloat too much of the part one because it is a little confusing on its own. However, I did mention a few times throughout this that uh, George did pass away eventually. However, he did remain firm that the house uh, and a lot of the items within it were attached to several spirits, and this was all the way up until his death that occurred in the year of 2005. So not that long ago. And after his death, no one, uh, I should say no extended family, um, would come and lay claim to the property. And eventually it and a lot of the items that were originally there were sold off. This becomes a good portion of the second story that I'm going to be talking about. I guess essentially like a second stage of the house's history. Again, the Espy family was a pretty significant chunk of the home's history. And now we've only, it's only been on its own essentially for 14 years. But there's still a lot of stuff I need to talk about uh, that has occurred within those 14 years that sort of put a perspective on the, the stuff that has occurred from 1926 up until 2005. And uh, the Bellaroy Mansion is simply, I assumed that it was going to be a short average length episode. Um, but again, as I mentioned, as I dove into this location, the more I learned, the more I wanted to talk about, and the more I just sort of wanted to understand and sort of unravel. And a lot of that had to do with George and some of the characters that got pulled into this crazy story and this crazy home that he resided in. And I just, I'm, I'm excited for part two. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, I've given some details as to what to expect. However, I'm not going to mention what's actually going to occur. So stay tuned. That is going to be coming out uh, next week. And I don't know what is next week technically from this point. Um, so that should be the 28th when it gets uploaded. Oh, God, it's going to be right after the holidays. <laughs> um, so at that point, I guess it would be our holiday slash New Year's type episode. And again, like I said, it's going to be the one that wraps out this year, 2019, which was my first year here at the podcast. So that's going to be an interesting way to end it. Having a two-parter that no one expected or was really prepared for. But yeah, again, I'm excited for this. And I hope you guys do stay tuned for part two if you did enjoy part one. 
And if you want to check out any of the show note links or any of the resources that I used in preparing this location's sort of script and episodes, you can do so over at the Patreon as well as some behind-the-scenes content over there. And that is just Patreon slash Realm of Unknown. And if you want to stay up to date for when things are going to drop or some snippets for locations that we will be talking about in the future, you can do so over at Twitter and Instagram at Realm of Unknown. And again, I had a really great time. I'm glad to be back and I'm more of a consistent um, sort of upload schedule. And I sort of want to keep these things a bit more tight, a bit more consistent, and a bit more uh, sort of on pace with the script and the format that I have. Again, I want to sort of leave the more talkative stuff towards solo things once a month or so, so I don't have half-hour rambling sessions that I'm beginning right now (laughs) again. Uh, But yeah, so that's all for this episode. I hope that this was good. (laughs) It was short-ish for this first part. Um, I'm not sure how long the second part will be. I'm still writing the script as I record, but I hope you guys do stay tuned for that. And whenever it comes out, I hope you guys enjoy it. Until then, remember to stay spooky. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. 